Well, I'll invite you now to open back up to Romans chapter four as we think about what Paul is up to here in the fourth chapter of Romans. I wonder if you have ever made a promise that you were unable to fulfill. Have you ever made a promise that you just couldn't deliver on? Um, I wonder if you promised your spouse that you would do a little less online shopping and you've been unable to fulfill that. I wonder if you promised your parents that you'd be back at 11 p.m. and you were unable to do that. Maybe you promised yourself in 2020 you would eat a healthier diet and do some exercise and you found yourself unable to do that. It might be easier for you to think about a promise that someone else made to you that they have not fulfilled. Something specific may have just come to mind when I said that. Politicians make promises, parents make promises, children make promises, employers make promises that they do not keep. All we have to do is look at how marriages just fall apart today to see that we have trouble keeping promises. Did you notice the theme of promise in our chapter? If you didn't, you won't fail to now. Just look, for example, at verse 13. It was not through law, Paul says, that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. And then he doesn't stop talking about promise. Verse 14, again the promise. And verse 16, again the promise. And verse 20, and verse 21, promise, promise, promise. This passage is all about promise. But what promise? And what is he saying about it? Now, before I tell you, it may seem strange for Paul to just talk about Abraham like this. You know, the past few weeks we've been talking about the gospel, haven't we? The gospel, which is the message of humanity's unrighteousness and dire need of salvation. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, man, woman, everyone needs God's forgiveness for their sin and for falling short of the glory of God. And God has provided a way of salvation. Chapter three, verse 21. The righteousness of God has been revealed in his gift of Jesus Christ who died and rose again and offers salvation for all who come to him. Jesus gets one paragraph Abraham gets a whole chapter. Isn't that strange? What is he doing? It almost sounds like Paul is just kind of rummaging around in the attic in dusty old cardboard boxes way back thousands of years ago, Abraham and Sarah, when God was uh, speaking to Abraham and Sarah. Why does he go back and talk about this? Why isn't he shining a light on the gospel? Why isn't he telling us about Jesus? Tell me more about Jesus. Why do I need to hear about Abraham? Isn't that outdated old stuff? Well, the reason why Paul takes us all the way back there in the dusty corridor, the dusty attic, is because of the idea of promise. The simple fact is, God made a promise. And what this chapter wants to show us is that when God makes a promise, he makes good on that promise. God makes promises and he delivers on his promises. It doesn't matter if he made the promise thousands of years ago, he will deliver on his promises. He is not like you and me. He doesn't forget about his promises. 
He doesn't hope that the person he promised to will just forget about it. He doesn't slip to plan B or C or D when things don't work out the right way. God delivers on his promises every time. And what he's going to say is that the promise he made to Abraham and Sarah is fulfilled in the gospel. He is talking about the gospel. He hasn't changed topics. He is talking about how the gospel is the fulfillment of a promise he made thousands and thousands of years ago, and he has not forgotten about it, and he will not forget about it. What he did when he sent Jesus Christ to die and raise again was exactly what he meant to do even thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. This is exactly what he meant to do. Jesus and his death and resurrection is not plan B. It wasn't a last-ditch attempt to save his face. This is exactly what he was planning to do long, long ago, in eternity past indeed. Yet there's something more to the promise. It's not simply that the gospel is the fulfillment of God's promise. It is, but when God delivers on his promises, he always does so in a way that is surprising. He always does so in a way that we could not have expected. You see, this is, this is the truth about God. He is reliable, but he is not predictable. God is far too creative for us to predict what he's going to do. We know that he's reliable. We know he's dependable. We know he's consistent and he makes good on his promises, but he never does so in a way that we could have imagined or we could have predicted. And that's exactly what we're gonna learn here in this chapter. In fact, there's three things that are surprising about how God has made good on his promise. Three surprising things. The first surprising thing is who the promise is for. Who the promise is for is very, very surprising. Who is the, pro the promise for? God promised to bless Abraham and bless the world through Abraham. Who is the recipient of the promise? Is it those of us who are ethical, moral, upstanding people who pay our taxes and give to charity? No! Who is the promise for? The ungodly. Look down at verse four and five. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Who is the promise for? It is not for the godly. It is for the ungodly. Now that ought to be surprising because everybody tells you that God blesses and make, makes promises to those who earn it and those who deserve it and to those who clean themselves up and get on the right path and earn God's attention and earn God's favor and earn the attention of God to say, I will bless you. But that is not who is blessed here. It is the ungodly, the ungodly, Notice how surprising this would be. Paul knows this, and so he gives you another example. He tells you about David. Look down at verse seven and eight. This is a quotation from one of David's psalms, and he says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are 
covered. Notice he does not say, blessed are those who do not commit transgressions. Those who do not sin, they get the blessing. No, blessed are those whose transgressions are covered, whose sins are forgiven. It doesn't take long for you to think, if you know your Bible well, that Abraham was ungodly. It does not take long to think about stories of David that confirm, indeed, David was ungodly. This promise is not for the godly. It's for the ungodly. It's not for those who earn it, those who merit it. It's for those who believe God when God speaks. What I've just been describing is the great doctrine of justification by faith. Now, you've probably heard that term used, that doctrine thrown around, justification by faith, but I wonder if you know what it actually means. Well, it's okay. You don't have to admit that you don't know what it means. I'm about to tell you. And so it's mentioned here in verse 2, and then it's defined in verse 3. So verse 2 says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about but not before God. What does the scripture say? What does it mean to be justified? Here it is, verse three. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what is justification? It is God crediting righteousness to somebody. They may not be godly. They, in fact, like Abraham, might be ungodly, but they can find right standing with God Not through earning it by being godly, but by believing. That's the faith. Justification, right relationship with God. Righteousness. By faith, not by works, but by believing in what God says. That's justification by faith. And you'll see, if you know what it means now, you'll see it mentioned over and over and over through the whole passage. When God credits righteousness to somebody or he reckons righteousness to somebody, they are justified. And Paul is saying quite clearly that that promise is not for the godly, but for the ungodly. Neither David nor Abraham are held up as examples for us to say, wow, what a great guy. What a wonderful, upstanding guy. I want to be like that. They're not held up as examples for that because you know that they were not great guys. They did awful things. They failed miserably, but that's just the point. That's who God makes the promise to. That's who the promise is for. Is it surprising? Yes, but it's good news. It's really, really good news because there is no deed you can do, no work you can do, no amount of works you can do that will justify you in God's sight, that will give you right standing with him. You you cannot take the edge off God's wrath by being a nice guy. It doesn't work. It does not work. And so that's why he makes a very simple observation in the next paragraph. Verse 9, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? So if works do not get you right relationship with God, how about ritual? What if I begin to follow the Mosaic law? Will that help me? 
No, and the simple observation is, when was Abraham justified? When did he find right relationship with God? When he was circumcised and began to obey these rituals? No, it was before. It was before he even knew about circumcision. So there is no work you can do, there is no ritual you can do that will earn you favor with God. So when does God declare you righteous? After you've cleaned yourself up, and after you've made yourself lovable, and after you've made yourself a little bit better of a person, and after you've got on the right road, and after you've got your stuff together. No, that is not when you're justified. You're justified when you're ungodly, but you believe the word of God. Then he begins a work of redemption in your life. This blessing, this promise, this justification and righteousness is undeserved completely, unmerited completely. That's the first surprise, who the promise is for. But there's a second surprise here, and it's how the promise is secured. How is the promise guaranteed? How is the promise secured for those who are promised? Now, God promised Abraham that he would bless him and bless the world through him. But this is a big problem because Abraham fails all the time. And you and I fail all the time. And in fact, everybody talked about here in Romans chapter one through three, everybody, Jew, Gentile, male, female, they all fail all the time. How can the promise be secured with people who are undependable? That's what these verses 13 through 15 mean. The promise does not rest on law, but on grace. Okay, so... In my family, if I were to promise my girls that we are going to have ice cream, if you obey, and if you listen, and if you have a good attitude, that's what we say in our house, have a good attitude, and if you treat one another with kindness, and if there's no whining, we would never get ice cream. Because if the promise rests on law, the promise is worthless. And that's exactly what he says. The promise would be worthless if it rested on law and it required your obedience and it required you to be uh, on top of your game all the time. The promise would never, ever happen. I mean, have you ever gone online to get like a recipe to bake something? This happens to me. You look at the picture and it's just a beautiful cake and you're like, that's what I want to make. That, that is what I want to eat right now. And so you go through the steps and you go through all the ingredients and you do all the steps right, but it turns out looking like a joke compared to the picture with all the garnishes and the lighting and all the beautiful pink icing on the cake and everything. That always happens to me, and that's because the promise, that picture, rests on law. It rests on me being able to follow each step correctly, and I can't. I don't. I always put in too much of this and leave this out. And even if you do everything right, it's still not going to look like it does in the picture. That's because the promise that that website is selling you rests on law. And if God's promise is secured by law, we are all hopeless. If it requires us 
to obey the law, if it requires us to be good people, it cannot be secured. So that's what he means here, verse 13 through 15. If those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless. But we know that God's promise is not worthless. Therefore, he is going to have to make good on his promise all by himself, without your help. That means that if God's salvation got us 99% of the way there and you had to fill up the 1%, none of us would make it. Isn't that amazing? God's salvation is 100% his doing. And so if he's gonna bless the world, and he will, he's gonna do it not through law, but through sheer grace. That's how in verse 16, Paul can say that it's guaranteed Guaranteed because it doesn't rest on you and me. Now, there's a third surprising feature of the fulfillment of God's promise. First, the surprise is who it's for. Second surprise is how it's secured. The third surprise is what the promise includes. What the promise includes. So much more than we could have expected God surprises us over and over with how he comes through on his promises. Now, were you intrigued like I was reading this latter half of the passage? Remember that talk about Abraham being as good as dead? That's down in verse 19. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Now, that's a rude way to talk about your elders, isn't it, Paul? And then he makes it even worse and more awkward when he talks about Sarah. Her womb was also dead. Now, really, physically, they're not dead, but practically, they are dead as far as it relates to having children, yes? But why use such graphic language? Imagine saying that to their face. I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't. Why does Paul emphasize the deadness of Abraham's body and the deadness of Sarah's womb? I remember the first time I saw a dead body. This was over 10 years ago, and it was when my grandfather died. And I remember the funeral uh, quite vividly, and I remember the burial quite vividly, and I remember seeing the casket, and I saw him there, and that's a feeling that I've never had ever again, when you see a loved one in a casket. There's something not right about it. It creates within you a feeling, something not right about this, that is my grandpa, but it's not, and there's something deeply, deeply wrong. And I remember vividly the funeral and the casket going down. I remember being there with my family. I remember my dad's reaction. Why is that burned in my brain? Because deadness, deadness is unforgettable. So why does he talk about deadness here in such a graphic, awkward, uncomfortable way? He does to make a connection directly to you. What do I mean? Well, did you notice the repetition of the word dead when finally he gets to 
the end of the passage, verse 23. The words it was credited to him, he says, verse 23, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord, get ready, from the dead. Get it? That's the connection right there. That's the connection to you and to me. Abraham believed God. He believed that he would give life out of death. And he did. And when he believed, God credited it to him as righteousness. You and I believe that God did give life out of death when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And when we believe that, he credits it to us as righteousness. In other words, Abraham and Sarah looked forward to the day. They looked forward to the day that God would raise life out of death. And we look back on the day that he did for you and for me. That is how the gospel is a fulfillment of God's promise. He's doing exactly what he promised he would do, but he's doing it in a way that we could never have expected. And what he's calling us to do this morning and right now is look back on that day and believe that Jesus was put to death for our sins and raised to new life for our justification, for our righteousness. His righteousness is what you need. You don't need your own righteousness this morning. It will get you nowhere. You need Christ's righteousness or you're lost. You need his righteousness to speak in your defense. That is why Paul is so concerned to show you the life of Abraham and how it fits within the gospel. It looks forward to the day that God would make good on his promise, and he has. So we must believe it. There is no other offer. There's nothing else for you to grab hold of. Anything else you grab hold of will fail you. This is the only offer of salvation, of righteousness, of justification, of a right relationship with God. Abraham and David, they are not held up as models of good behavior. Do this and you'll be fine. They are held up as models of ungodly people who find righteousness when they believe the word of God, when they trust the word of God. I was on an airplane and I was looking through the magazine that they give you, and you know the kind of magazine they have in airplanes. And I remember looking at one page, and I had a celebrity who I don't know who it was, um, but there's a quote underneath, and it said, believe in everything just in case. How do you like that advice? Believe in everything just in case. Now, that's really good advice from the world, isn't it? Just believe. Believe in yourself believe that everything's going to be okay, just be a kind of person that is believing. Is that what Paul is saying? No. No, no, no. That is terrible advice. Don't believe everything. Paul wants you to believe one thing, one specific thing, not a general belief. Believe one thing. 
Believe that Jesus Christ was put to death for your sin and raised to life for your righteousness, for your justification. Believe that. That's the one specific thing that he is drilling home for you and I to believe. Because this is God's promise fulfilled, and there's no other fulfillment of that promise. There's no second chance. There's no plan B. This is it. And so what we've got to see is that this life-giving power that God had when he spoke creation into existence is the same life-giving power God demonstrated when he gave life out of the dead body of Abraham and the dead womb of Sarah. And it's the same life-giving power that raised Jesus from the dead. And it's the same life-giving power that will give life to our bodies when we are raised again on the last day. It's the same creative work of God shown in a new way, in a new way, in a creative way that we could never have imagined. And so when we put our trust in Christ, when we reach out in faith and grab what the gift that is given, God credits it to us as righteousness. Because we walk in the footsteps of Abraham who believed God. It must surely be a shock to realize that all of our goodness and decency, all of our Respectability brings nothing to the table in our salvation. You may have been living your life up to this point thinking that your decency, your goodness as a person will make God less angry with you at the final judgment. It won't. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling. We have to mean that. We have to really, really mean that, that we recognize that we offer nothing in our salvation. It's all grace, 100% grace. So that is an invitation to let go of what you think is going to help you in the final judgment. Let go of that and grasp through faith the gift of Christ's righteousness on your behalf. Let's pray and ask that God would help us do that. Father, we stand amazed at the way that you have fulfilled your promises to your people. Not just that you are faithful and that you are righteous, but how you have demonstrated that to us. We praise you for the depth of your wisdom and the depth of your gracious plan for us. So Father, we pray that you would help us believe it. Help us to wake up tomorrow morning still believing it and to wake up the next day still believing it even more, more and more each day. We ask for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray, amen.